1: Hey, 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 Seattle, Puget Sound, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I am your host, Christopher Chan, an advanced Ye, your weekend wine guy and your commodore of cocktails, which is very fitting today because I've got uh, an author of a really great book about uh, the drinkable globe. His name is Jeff Chicoletti, and we're going to chat about uh well a little about his history, his past uh and his present. he's got this great book, I got an advanced copy, which is really fun for me um and it's his cocktail season. you know it's cold out, gosh it was cold out it's winter I see uh, snow in the mountains, and it's time to uh fill that flask or if you're old school like me, that boda bag and uh start thinking about the mountains and some skiing or just snuggling up to a warm fire, which you're probably doing tonight uh. It's, uh, or you're probably at the Holiday Wine Fest, which is cool too. And I, I, for some reason, I can be in two places at once, which is the beauty of radio. Um, anyway, folks, we've got a, a great show. Uh, I also have, um, a PhD who is a, a producer of, um, he makes dirt, which sounds really interesting or sounds kind of weird. <laughs> I guess we all come ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We all end up there someday. But, uh, let's talk about, uh, international cocktails. I mean, I've traveled the world and uh, I always enjoy, um, a great beverage, especially something local. Um, and I was in South Africa, I've been to Asia, I've been to Canada, <laughs> and Mexico, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, England. Um, and yet, Jeff Chicoletti has got me beat. So let's waste no more time. Hey, Jeff Chicoletti, welcome to Happy Hour.
2: Oh, hi, how are you doing, Christopher? Good to talk to you.
1: It's great. And I see that I'm, uh, it's, it's Chioletti, not Chicoletti, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I say Cialetti. The, the technically, um, if we really want to be Italian, it's Cioletti, but um, I'm fourth-generation American, so somewhere along the way, we ended up pronouncing it Cioletti. So. Okay,
1: well, good. Well, then, uh, you're used to having it um, mispronounced on some occasions. But So, you are a journalist by trade, or give me a little history about who Jeff Cioletti is.
2: Yeah, no, I, was, um, I used to be the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Beverage World. Uh, you know, it covered, uh, you know, the industry, everything, basically, anything that you can put in a bottle or in a keg or whatever. I I covered it. Um, You know, it was a business publication for that industry. And, you know, during my time there, I just sort of fell in love with the uh, subject matter. I, I basically sort of immersed myself in all sorts of beverages. I gravitated a lot towards uh, spirits and beer and things like that, and I just realized I wanted this to sort of be my my kind of vocation in life, and <laughs> um, and I'm also an avid traveler, so I, I wanted to do a book that sort of combined both of those worlds. So it's basically uh, you know beverage cultures around the world.
1: That's that's interesting too, because when you think about your chosen profession or your vocation, it it took me back. And I thought I heard a train sound, because I was thinking hobos get on a train and find a different uh, a different beverage, oh. uh, alcoholic beverage from each stop they they end up in in the United States or wherever. It's kind of funny. Well, let's uh, yeah, a train uh, did just go by. It did. Okay, good. I thought I was. I heard it, and uh, we got a lot of trains out here too. Um, you are actually based where?
2: Uh, Alexandria, Virginia, the D.C. area. Oh,
1: okay. Cool. I've got a good pal out there. Yeah, I used to be in New York. All right. I used to be in New York, but I moved down here about three years ago. Yeah, you like that southern hospitality then, right? Is Virginia still the south?
2: Well, (laughs) it's, it's, you know, most people in the rest of Virginia don't consider this part of Virginia to be the south. So, um, like, they basically consider, like, Northern Virginia is kind of its own. Entity, ah, right. and if you ever even try to say, "Hey, I'm from the South," they'll just laugh in your face because they don't consider us Southerners.
1: Okay, um, one of my good friends uh, is like the beverage manager for Star Restaurants, or Star Restaurant Group out there, and there's a couple of great spots in D.C. and I lived in D.C. or in Maryland for a bit. Um, so I'm looking at this book. It's not coming out. The book comes out actually November 21st. Is that correct? It's correct. And um, yeah,
2: so it'll be it'll be about a week and a half from when. Yeah, about a week and a half.
1: I see. And and below uh, on this, it says Jeff Steeletti, The Drinkable Globe, The Indispensable Guide to the Wide World of Booze. I've got John McKay listening in my ear right now, uh, the old sports guy. But it says uncorrected proof. What does that mean?
2: Oh, this is an early version. Um, I <laughs> basically, yeah, no, If I, I can get, as a matter of fact, I just got the final versions yesterday from the publisher. Like they sent these out. Uh, These are basically uh, kind of the last round before I give it one final look and make any changes. You know, I made a few changes, nothing that that fundamentally changed the the structure of the book. I added a couple things here and there. I cut a couple things out and that sort of thing. But, you know, there were a couple photos that were in the wrong place that I had to correct. But other than that, um, it's pretty much the book.
1: (laughs) Okay, good to know. Now, have you written uh, books before? Do you have a couple other uh, um, titles under your name? Yes. I, uh,
2: my first book was called The Year of Drinking Adventurously, which was uh, sort of a, a, a challenge to people to try something new every week for a year. There were 52 chapters. Each one was a different week. Each one was a different drink to try. And my second book was called Beer FAQ, which was basically like a sort of no-nonsense, almost kitchen sink guide to beer. Uh, and that came out last year. Year of Drinking Adventurously came out two years ago. Uh, and this one's coming out next week.
1: Awesome! All right, so I'm looking at this, and uh, it says the drinkable globe, which is cool. Um, here's some of the countries you've actually uh, write about: Australia, Southeast Asia, or I should say regions: East Asia, Africa, Eastern and Central Europe, and the Balkans, Northern Western Europe, Central and South America, Caribbean Islands, North America. And the end of the world and beyond, which is pretty neat. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the methodology. How did you? What country did you start in? Did you start in your backyard in Virginia?
2: No, I decided, um, you know, for the sake of structure, um, the book would start sort of at the international dateline and work its way west. And I kind of wanted uh, the United States to be sort of one of the last places, you know, sort of like bringing it home, so to speak. So um, that was that was really why I structured um i mean i think it's really sort of the next to last place in there and you know so uh basically really it starts around new zealand and, and and works its way uh westward from there and uh you know sort of you know i i've uh you know i've been to you know pretty much all the regions that are in the book i i hadn't necessarily been to every country in the book so that was the way it was structured. Uh, I, I you know, you can tell there's, like, personal anecdotes in the places that I've been and my experiences, and then, uh, you know, when I when I sort of venture out in the book to other places, surrounding areas, I talk more specifically about the beverages than I do about my own
1: experiences. Right on, because I was wondering, that's a lot of places to cover and uh, yeah, a lot no. of time. <laughs> no, I just, I,
2: yeah, no, I wanted to be, um, I, I definitely wanted to hit the, you know, The main areas And you know You know I'd been on Six of the continents there And you know Different regions Within those continents But no I I hadn't been to Every single country
1: So nothing from uh, Antarctica then right? (laughs)
2: Well there is There is a section On Antarctica I, I hadn't actually Been there But I do write A little bit about Antarctica Because there's a Just to make it Sort of Just like More thorough So you hit all the continents But there actually is a There's a vodka Distillery on Antarctica, where, you know, the scientists who work down there, they run a distillery, <laughs> anybody who visits, like, you know, people on cruises that go to Antarctica, um, they pay three bucks and they can get a shot of this vodka that's, like, made from ultra-pure, you know, glacier water I mean, from from there. So that's sort of a neat little smoothie there. And then I, I sort of do, I combine that, because the end is called, like, you near know, the end of the world, meaning the edge of the world in Antarctica. And beyond, beyond is space. So I talk a little bit about... Uh, the history of booze in space, uh, the future of booze in space, you know, what we can expect when, uh, you know, commercial space travel becomes a an actual industry and, you know, where and you know, also possibility of colonizing Mars and that sort of thing on how they're going to have to have a distiller in Mars. So just fun stuff like that just to make it a little more. Just to sort of end it on a more sort of that's fun. futuristic note.
1: Well, that's fun. Well, we're pretty spacey out here in the Pacific Northwest with uh, a Boeing and Bezos too. Man, he <laughs> wants to to do the whole uh, interstellar experience. And I'm thinking, you know, what do what do astronauts drink in space? Obviously, they drink Tang, right? So you got to have powdered alcohol. You ever had powdered alcohol? Yeah. Well,
2: have I had powdered alcohol? Yeah. No, I have not. I know they came out with that stuff a couple years ago. The United States started doing it, and I think that sort of the whole concept of it is pretty much dead on arrival. (laughs) Um, What's really going to happen in space is like, um, well, first of all, officially NASA doesn't allow alcohol in space, even though there have been a couple of instances uh, in the past. You know, obviously um, there's a story about how Buzz Aldrin, when he was on the moon, he actually drank sacramental wine. You know, because uh, he was a devout Catholic, so he took communion and he, um, you know, and he, and he drank some wine. I think he got some sort of special dispensation for that, or at least it was sort of a "don't ask, don't tell" kind of thing. Um, Russians, however, <laughs>
1: there's, a bit
2: of a, there's a bit of a history of, of you know, alcohol in space. Like supposedly, um, you know, Stoly has been, been brought onto the space station, and um, you know, and also the space station, international space station actually has a distillery on it. Uh, ah. it's not supposed to be used for making alcohol. It's really supposed to be used for, uh, making your urine potable. <laughs> Basically. Cause, cause you think about it, like how else are you going to get water up there? Because people who are up there for a year. They can't keep supplying it. You know, keep sending up like supply pods with water. It takes up a lot of space. So they have to kind of, They had to improvise and basically take all the nasty stuff out of their pee and they drink it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's really interesting. So you are very knowledgeable about the world of beverages and even the uh, extraterrestrial world of beverages. So um, let's get started with the book here. What country would you like to tell me about that you've uh, had a a very wonderful experience or that you found so unique?
2: I mean, it always for me it always seems to be Japan because they've got one of the most incredible (laughs) (laughs) drinking cultures. I've ever experienced, and um, and I'm always learning something new every time I'm there. Um, I just, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's kind of uh, entire industries have sort of been built up around the fact that people are often missing the last train home oh, right. in the night because they're out drinking. You know, it's like I've seen, you know, because the the subways, there they stop running, I think, at 1 o'clock, and they don't start again till 5 a.m. And um, so, you know, all those capsule hotels have sort of popped up because mainly for people who miss their last trains and need to change (laughs) downtown so they can go to work the next morning. And and also, you know, I've just I've seen people sort of sleeping in the train station, you know, with their phone like five feet from them. (laughs) And, you know, it's perfectly (laughs) safe. So it's going to be there. But um, and then you have like late night karaoke bars because people are out. Um, you know, because basically, because they 're stuck downtown and uh you know all sorts of things like that, and then you walk into convenience stores they 've got all these sort of uh rehydration anti hangover wow. uh, all sorts of things to sort of combat the effects of heavy drinking and uh but i mean it's really and there's sort of a, there's sort of almost a structure to a night out of drinking too, like a lot of times it's very common to sort of start with a beer and I I kind of made a mistake in the past I kind of went right for the hard stuff while everyone else was like no you really you start with a beer and then you kind of work your way up whether it's going to be something like a mild fermented beverage like like sake or you're going to go up to like shochu or even you know Japanese whiskey or something like that where it's really strong but usually you don't start with that first
1: you start with a beer
2: and um
1: (laughs) I'm glad there's a method to the madness
2: there is a method to the madness and you know, uh, it's it, it's definitely like a, a very sit down and drink culture. I mean, there are these things they have that are called standing bars, but um, but for the most part, you know, culturally, uh, and it's it's like this in in, in much of Asia where um, drinking is usually accompanying a meal. You're sitting down, like the bars that we have here, where people are cramming in, uh, you know, standing room only, and you can't get through to get to the bar and that sort of thing. That's sort of a foreign concept there, because basically, you know, you can get in if there's a seat. You can get in, you sit down, and you drink, and you know, <laughs> eat fun. while you drink. And, <laughs> and some, some, I've had people tell me there, you know, you know, they're like, you know, why we, uh, you know, we get drunk quickly, really easily, because, because right, we're sitting down and we don't hold, really that, feel thought. It hold that thought. Hold that thought, Jeff.
1: All right, we got to take a break. We'll be right back here on Happy Hour Radio.
0: Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan.
1: All right, happy Saturday night. Welcome back. Time for round two. I've got Jeff Cialetti, who is uh, the author of the new upcoming book, which will be released uh, on the 21st. It's called The Drinkable Globe, The Indispensable Guide to the Wide World of Booze. We were chatting about, uh, well, his first country that he found unique and interesting. Um, Apparently, Jeff, there's no word in Japan for moderation. Is that (laughs) correct?
2: Well, I mean, I don't don't speak Japanese, so I I couldn't really (laughs) vouch for that. I mean, the concept of moderation certainly, Um, and I, and.
1: That's true, because they've got those things in small, the little small beers, and little small, they pour little shots of sake that are small, so I get that, that's the moderation, but 50 of those add up.
2: Yeah, no, that's true, but um, but I believe I've I've been out there, and, and people certainly do enjoy drinking in moderation. It's very, it's, you know, sometimes you just want to sit down and have a nice snack with a meal, and. Uh, that's that's my favorite part. You know, while I, I've been out on these sort of epic bar crawls and stuff, you know, where everyone's drinking until about four AM, you know, I I
1: personally prefer the
2: the sort of quieter evenings.
1: Right on. All right. So um as far as Japan goes, what's what's a unique beverage that you think uh people would here in the United States would enjoy and, and that's a pretty broad brush to be painting with, but what do you think I mean? It's not shochu. We can't be drinking that or plum wine or whatever else. But what's what's a good cocktail that people might go and say, "Hey, I want to try this because I heard it on the radio."
2: Um, you don't you don't think it would be shochu because I think
1: shochu. <laughs> uh, I, I think more people need to be drinking shochu here. Uh, well, you know my experience with shochu. It's made of uh, is it made from sour gum, right? Sorghum. No,
2: is- no, it's it's um, there's a lot of different things, but some of them are made with sweet potato, sweet potatoes, some potatoes. barley, some.
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought it was so, always a bit I mean, acrid or a bit sour, or pungent. It's a very pungent fuel. Well,
2: I mean, sometimes I mean, unless you're
1: you're thinking of soju, because I know soju can be a little
2: more all over the map like that. And that's that's the Korean version. Yeah, that's it. Tends to be, yeah. soju is very. Um, there's sort of like a refinement to it. It's um, oh. You get a re- you get a real flavor, like especially the authentic ones. You get a real flavor, mm-hmm. yeah, the base ingredient, whether that's sweet potatoes or, or buckwheat or barley or rice or things like that. You do get a lot of that character because it's usually distilled only once, and it's actually pretty light in alcohol, usually around twenty five percent, and it's great on the rocks. Okay, so cool. I mean, I'm also very much into sake too. I just got uh my sake somali certification so um i'm a huge huge fan of that i mean people are a little more familiar with that here than they are with shochu however um i do feel like there's still like a huge market opportunity here for sake and there's a lot of misinformation out there about it and i want to be part of sort of that education process to to dispel some of those myths
1: well i'll i'll join you in the ranks in the in that uh endeavor it was that through toshio unio or, or toshi unio from your sake certification the, the, yes, it was. I'm yeah, that... I remember. I think I saw that on Facebook a while back. He was in D.C. or uh, somewhere around there. Okay, so we talked about um, Japan. Now, uh, obviously, when you think about the Eastern Europe blocks, we're, ta- we're thinking about vodka. It's either Polish vodka or Russian vodka or Kazakhstan yeah. vodka. So we'll, we won't go there yet, but um, let's talk about uh, Finland and Iceland. What are some of the okay. cocktails and spirits that you, th- you found unique there?
2: Um Iceland uh their sort of national spirit is something called Brennivin and it's mainly um it, it's sort of like modeled after some other Scandinavian spirits you do get like a uh, significant hit of caraway in it but uh. you know originally it was it, I mean originally it was sort of meant to be as nasty as possible because <laughs> um Iceland's had a really sort of spotty relationship with alcohol they had a prohibition for a while and then then um, they wanted to have a beverage that people could drink, but they weren't interested in making it good. But then it became part of the culture, and there actually is some really good Brennevin out there. And I think that the translation is sort of like burned wine, which is um, yeah. basically – which is actually the root where brandy comes from, too. Exactly. Um, like burned. So, yeah. So that's that's Brenovan. Um You know, and, and uh, Finland is interesting because they have um, a uh, – like a lot of interesting liqueurs, um, one of them is called uh, Laponia Laka, and Laka is, is a word for um, cloudberry. It's an indigenous berry there. Uh, Finland has a very sort of foraging culture because, uh, basically, I, I'm I'm not exactly sure how this works, but I think the government basically said that the forests pretty much belong to the people, and people can go. And forage whatever they can, so you get all these these sort of indigenous berries that come from the forest, and people have this uh, tradition of eating these berries. So they've they've turned a lot of those berries, particularly the the cloudberry, into a liqueur. So um, that that's an interesting thing there as well. Um, And then of course you know aquavit is is very Scandinavian. The you know it's it's uh, caraway or dill. Sort of right. flavored, um, almost a neutral spirit. There goes another train. I apologize for
1: that. <laughs> well, we oh, you're you're live. Thing. It's uh, it's train time. It's uh, <laughs> you know that they're trying to get home too. Um, that's interesting, and it's it's peculiar that we have these uh, seed based liqueurs that are flavoring. Because what is the major distillate? What's the what's the uh, the carbohydrate or the starch that they're distilling with for some of these? Um. Gotta to wait for that train
2: to go by. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, the, um, a lot of times it's whatever grain is available. I mean, sometimes it'll be potatoes. Um, sometimes, it, on, on rare occasions, it'll be a fruit base. It'll be like a you know a brandy that'll that'll be infused with other things. But for the most part, uh, you get a lot of grains because a lot of grains tend to be resilient in that part of the world. You know, when you get colder temperatures, yeah,
1: hardy winter um, you wheat. have that have
2: stuff that can sort of grow into the. So you know, that's why that's why rye kind of became popular uh, for a while in, in places like Poland and whatnot because uh, they're known to hold up pretty well uh, in the winter and you know certain types of wheat as well.
1: Cool. So um, when you went down to uh, New Zealand, uh, I've been to New Zealand, yeah. and you know it's funny because you talked about traveling the world, drinking beers and spirits, but you know, obviously I'm a wine guy, but I love it all. Um, those are my Milwaukee roots. Uh, tell me what you found down in New Zealand. The thing about New Zealand that's interesting is that um, there, there's a bit of uh, whiskey
2: distilling renaissance going on there. Um, it sort of follows what's happened in Australia as well. Uh, you have a lot of kind of Scottish influence uh, in its history, and now people are doing a lot of single malts. And they're doing some really good stuff. I mean, there's one distiller the in particular in um, in New Zealand that I talked to in the book. Um, they're really trying to not just kind of model their spirit on the Scottish tradition. They're also trying to give it a bit of sort of New Zealand flavor so they've they 've kind of smoked it with this uh, this manuka wood and that 's a very that that 's a sort of a uh, you know flora that's that 's um, native yeah. to new zealand and it's it's not you know it's very it doesn't it 's not that similar to uh, you know peat that you would get peat smoked whiskey it 's actually sort of its own thing so they 're trying to bring a little bit of that local flavor there and I would really you know there's still kind of in uh the, the industry is very small. i'd like to see it grow they definitely have the demand um and i, I would like to see some more whiskeys like that And in, in other countries too that are that are making like sort of global spirits i'd like them to be bringing more of their sort of local flavor to it because i'd hate for everybody just to be making the same thing
1: right Right. In um, that Manuka wood, I think there's a special honey that's produced down in New Zealand that provides some great health benefits. Reminds me of that name. Uh, hey, folks, speaking with Jeff Cialetti of the Drinkable Globe, author of The Indispensable Guide to the Wide World of Booze. We've got just another minute or two. Um, I want to talk about uh, this uh, Central America. So, have you tried a lot of Pisco's or uh, Cachasa, or um, what are some of the drinks you found uh, in? This and well I guess South America for that matter.
2: Yeah, yeah. South America's like I've I've had quite a bit of Pisco. Um also there's a, there's a beverage from um it's it's another sort of grape based uh brandy called um called Singani that's from Bolivia. That's really interesting. It's got like some really intense floral notes to it. Uh, um and then once you get up into Central America, uh you get uh basically these very sort of crude almost moonshiny rums that, Uh, uh, you know, the the, sort of the umbrella term is Aguardiente. uh, uh, You know, sometimes they just call them Guaro for short, but there's one in particular that I'm fond of from Guatemala, uh, the Quezalteca, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, they're highly mixable, but I just like to drink them on their own, too. They're just really rough, but you really do... (laughs) You know, there is sort of a, a burn to them, but there is like sort of this distinct character. You know, a lot of them are made from from sugarcane, so they are essentially kind of unaged rums and whatnot, but, uh, but a very sort of crude, rough-around-the-edges form of it, and it's like something you're really not going to drink anywhere else, which I find really, really
1: interesting. And then, you know... Wait, hold I up. First of, of all, we've got to find out where to get your books. If we were going to run out of time. here. So, tell- Is there a website to, f- to order the book, or w- when should we look for it?
2: Yeah, you can get it at like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, the usual places, and you can visit my website, drinkableglobe.com. Uh, but it's going to be available just pretty much anywhere you can order books online, on you know independent bookstores, Barnes and Noble, the usual places. So, all right, well we... it's available for pre-order right now. So. Oh, good. And what's the price? Uh, Nineteen ninety-nine is the cover price. Amazon does discounts. I've seen it as low as like. Eleven ninety nine. so it just depends ah. on what kind
1: of day you catch them on. But. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Hey, Jeff, well, thanks for sharing this. I'm really digging the book. Can't read to peruse it more. And I uh, hope you have a great holiday season, and we'll chat again in the new, in the new year. Thanks. You too, Christopher. Appreciate being on. All right. Ciao.
0: He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
1: All right, happy Saturday night. Hope you're at the Holiday Wine Fest and uh, doing some fun things. Perhaps you enjoy Chocolate Fest today. and. Uh, Kawabanga and, uh, the auto show. Man, this is a busy weekend, but, uh, I'm here to talk about, uh, some cool topics. And the topic is called terroir. Uh, as a sommelier, we talk about minerality and the sense of minerality. And, uh, it's quite a debate these days because, uh, obviously through science, we can find that, uh, a, a grapevine synthesizes, um, nutrients from the, from the earth and from, uh, from water. Um, but it, it cleanses them. There's there's really no evidence that this minerality actually has a um, a, a form inside the wine. There's uh, it's just a sense, and it's really interesting because we talk about chalk, we talk about slate, we talk about gravel, we talk about schist, we talk about um, organic and uh, um, uh, forest floor um, notes. And I have someone online who's the who's just started a very exciting. Um, uh, Biology kind of startup. It's called Biome Makers, and uh, his name is Adrian Ferrero. He's the CEO, and he's uh, uh, actually a Spaniard, so he has a bit of an accent. But, um, Adrian Ferrero, hey, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Fantastic. So, um, let's talk about your company that you started. Tell me about Biome Makers.
3: So, Biome Makers is a smart microbial discovery startup based in San Francisco. In essence, what we do is we use uh, genetics to disclosure the whole list or the whole profile of microbes that are living or are in an environmental sample. And and then we use computing technologies to process that information and make a meaning out of this list of bacteria and fungal species. And we apply this technology specifically for wine industry and our technology is called Winesheak. That what
1: we do. Very interesting. So let's talk about uh, soil and rocks and, and microbes and bacteria. So when we think about the dirt in my backyard, there's some small pebbles and then there's a bunch of black stuff, which I call dirt. Now you're telling me, is that actually a living product? Is that uh, a living form and those microbes are, are there? Or are there microbes as well on pieces of rock?
3: Well, uh, I can say that microbes are all around, so you can find them everywhere. But when we talk about the winemaking or specifically about wine and uh, people try to understand what's the impact, the influence of the terroir, so we always, always think on how the terroir is reflected in the grape flavors. So that somehow is real, is happening, but there is something that we don't see that it's there especially if we think about wine, how long it has been among us. So the fermentation that is produced by fungal species called yeasts, so that's, those species are living in the vineyard naturally. And uh, whenever you crush the grapes, the grape juice has a lot of sugar, a lot of nutrients that these yeasts take. For, for the digestion and they produce alcohol and they make the fermentation and then turn the juice into the, the wine so trying to explain the terra base from a different point of view which is the microbes that interact in this, this is completely new and fascinating
1: Quite so, um, so how many microbes are there in a, a square inch of, of soil would you say?
3: When, when we talk about cells we're talking about billions of cells,
1: Uh. when we talk
3: about species, we're talking about something between, in average, in a vineyard, we
1: find something
3: between 800 and 1,300 different species of microbes.
1: Wow, and you started tracking the uh, DNA, the uh, genetic profile of all these microbes, so you have a database uh, listing these different species of microbes?
3: Yeah, today we have processed around 3,000 samples coming from 18 different countries. So we are building the first biomap for wine regions, which is very exciting because then you can understand better how, uh, which species are in certain areas that are not in other areas. And then make some kind of understanding how this can impact the final flavor profile of a wine.
1: Very interesting. So would you say that a bottle of wine also has microbes living in it, or would the alcohol destroy the living, living uh, organisms?
3: Well, in fact, uh, we have already tested some bottles of wine, and we find some species. It's true that the environment is so extreme that even microbes have really hard times to survive, but there are some bacteria that still remain there. And that, that's something that you see in the moment you open a bottle of wine and then you let the oxygen to enter, so something starts to happen into the wine. And there are some microbes, especially bacteria, at that stage, that uh, impact the evolution of the wine once you open the bottle of wine. So, yes.
1: Interesting. So, uh, like acetobacter, something that eats alcohol and turns it into vinegar, that's actually a microbe? Yes, yeah, it's a bacteria. Wow. Okay. Um, speaking with, uh, Adrian Ferraro, who is the, uh, the CEO of Biome Makers. It's, uh, a, co- an, a company that studies soil and, uh, looks to map the genomes of different microbes that live in soils. And you say you've, uh, mapped, uh, soil samples or, or microbes from 18 different countries. Uh, that includes America, I, I would assume. Yeah, well,
3: and not just uh, when we say America, the States, we're talking about (laughs) California and the different areas in California, but also Washington State and Oregon, and we have some samples also from the area of Chicago and New York.
1: Wow, okay, New York too, that's pretty cool. So tell me, if people want more information, is there a website that people can learn more, especially we have a lot of winemakers that listen to the show, and I'm sure they'd be kind of curious, as well as vineyards and vineyard workers.
3: Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, people can register for free in our website, which is called wineseek.com. Okay, you can look uh, anywhere in any surfer and you will find it. And uh, create an account and access to all the knowledge that we have open for everybody. It's called the wiki biome. Okay, we have prof. We have information about all the great varieties. We have information about all kinds of diseases affecting the vineyard which are related to microbes, and we have information about all the microbes that impact anyway the winemaking. And we're talking about 2,800 different species that impact either the health of the plants in the vineyard or the fermentation
1: process. Interesting. So that's wine uh, seek, uh like sequence. S E Q. Wine s e q. dot com, and I, that's a pretty clever name because I think you're talking about the DNA sequencing of the uh, the microbes. Now, do these microbes have names? Do you have a special name if you discover one that no one's uh, found before, and do you get to name them like a star or something?
3: Yeah, you can imagine that this technology has been applied for microbial discovery not long time ago. So the knowledge that we are gathering is very valuable. And we, we, even if we see the DNA of the species, there are not references to name them. So we are accumulating this kind of data. But uh, yes, the, the ones that we can name that are the what I mentioned before, 100,000 per soil sample, yeah, there are very cool species there. And uh, some of them can impact a lot in flavors, because when we talk about the terroir, uh, we were talking before the minerality, which is very hard to explain even for sommeliers, isn't it?
1: It is, uh, because we, we all have different taste buds and different, uh, mouthfeel, different pH. So, um, acidity sometimes seems high, though it might not be that high. And it, it's, we try to find a common language. And I think the Master Sommiers, the Guild of Master Sommiers or Court of Master Sommiers helps us, uh, fine tune our vernacular so we can all sort of speak the same language. Now, I, how many scientists do you have, uh, working for, uh, Biomake, Biome makers?
3: So right now, our team is composed by 20 people, and uh, 40% of the members are PhD level in genetics, microbiology, agriculture, science, and also software development and bioinformatics. So wow. yeah, we have uh, many scientists.
1: That's pretty exciting. So <laughs> you probably have uh, um, some great uh, technology as well. I'm sure um, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back. I wanted I wanted you to help me uh, understand one of the particular microbes in uh, that Biome Makers has identified, and what sort of flavors that particular microbe can uh, offer or influence in a wine, and in a good way. Um, or maybe there's something that there's a there's a naughty microbe out there, a bad microbe. Um, speaking with Adrian Ferrero, who is the CEO of Biome. And we're talking about terroir, going to the DNA of the microbes in the soil. So stick around, we'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio.
0: your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local 6 to 10 a.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI, want to know weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All
1: right, hey folks, welcome back. It's time for our fourth and final segment and we're digging into terroir. Diving into the soil uh, under a microscope with some scientists, some microbiologists, and learning what really affects the flavor, what terroir is in terms of the living matter. I've got Adrian Ferrero, who's the CEO of Biome Makers out of San Francisco. They've, um, they've scanned or they've traveled to 18 different countries and taken soil samples. And apparently there's 800 to 1,000 different microbes in a, a little piece of earth, um, with, uh, gosh, thousands of different DNA sequences. So, uh, Adrian, tell me, um, is there one particular microbe that uh, or bacteria that can change the, the way a wine tastes that you found?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, actually, we find many of them. Uh, the, the reality is that we don't know much about all of them, but uh, for those that we know, we really like, and it's very trendy to talk about non-saccharomyces yeast, and it's uh, those are species that you find in ginger in soil quite often. For instance, there is uh, one non-saccharomyces, which is Torula spora, dubreci And uh, this, this yeast produce kind of tropical fruit, fruit flavors. So if you take the byproduct, which is a molecule, and you concentrate it, just a drop of this molecule... If you release it in a swimming pool, Olympic swimming pool, you will feel the flavor of this tropical fruit. It's more linked to passion fruit. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, wow. That's a that's a strong little microbe, and uh, I'm concerned. That sounds like uh, microbial warfare to an extent, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and one drop, huh? Interesting. Well, um, your web yeah. your website is wine sequence wine S-E-Q, dot com, and uh, you just started this company uh, a year ago, is that right?
3: Uh, actually, May two thousand
1: fifteen.
3: Uh, that's when we start developing all the technology, the application of this medical grade technology into the agriculture field, and specifically to understand the microbes in the wine industry. Fair. That's our background.
1: Fantastic. Well, I really enjoyed learning about this. Uh, As a sommelier, we talk about terroir. We typically talk about organic and inorganic. And of course, inorganic are stones and chalk and clay and all that. Um, But the organic has always been a little different for us to identify, whether it's fall leaves or mushrooms or uh, potting soil, um, things like that. You've opened up... um, Well, a little Pandora's box of of different things to understand here, but I appreciate uh, you sharing this with me, Adrian Ferrero. Thanks so much for joining us on Happy Hour Radio.
3: Okay, it was a pleasure. I'm really happy to share all our findings with the community.
1: Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll, I'll be uh, asking questions about some Washington winemakers and see if they've uh, had their soil uh, under the microscope. So take care. We'll look forward to seeing you here sometime. Thank you very much. Good day. All right, that's Adrian Ferrero, who's the CEO of Biome Makers, which uh, for all you winemakers and vignerons out there, um, I bet you probably want to know what's in your soil. And there's, uh, of course, we can always take the mineral analysis, whether it's potassium or nitrogen or uh, carbon and things like that, but uh, he's talking about the living things that are there and how they can affect the flavors of wine. Um, There's a lot of flavors of wine happening tonight at the Holiday Wine Fest and uh, Cowabunga uh, over at South Lake Union, but uh, I got to tell you, I just got... Um a press release. There is a brand new tasting room, a new tap room down in on Airport Way South. And it's our friends at Elysian Brewing. Uh, they've got a brand new tap room. It's open Thursday and Friday from two to eight, Saturday and Sunday, noon to six plus. So it's uh it's a great place to they've got twenty different taps, cast conditioned beers and food trucks every week. Uh, it's in Georgetown, it's fifty-four ten Airport Way South. You gotta check it out. Um, I'm gonna be heading over there in a little bit. And I know that uh, the Single Malt Scotch Extravaganza was in town uh, yesterday, and gosh, I still smell like peat, and uh, I guess I should say I reek of peat. <laughs> uh, it's always a fun time. It's hosted by the Single Malt Scotch Society of uh, America, and uh, they're based out of Florida, and it's Alan and Maddie Shane. I've known them for years and years, and they they actually... Um, are kind of negotiants. They will talk to and visit Scotland and go to distilleries and, and buy a barrel of, you know, different, specifically very special uh, whiskey and they will bottle it. And then they've got a, a whole host, like a hundred different whiskies that are really not on the commercial market except for this particular um, association. So I know that the single malt scotch event was fantastic, uh, lots of great t- food and fun. It's always at the Rainier Club. And that's a great sign. Hey, I look forward to seeing you down at Elysian Brewing one of these days. Um, next week, I've got uh, Scotch Ambassador Jamie Mandeville, and she'll be in, in uh, talking about some cool new scotches: the Aberfeldy 16 and the Glen. Uh, oh no, the Craig, Craiglachie 17. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we have a website that's called HappyHourRadio.net. And uh, when you're out and about, remember life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.